Tonight's reading comes from Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slayed, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of God. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar here, and it's uh, my pleasure to be preaching from Revelation 5 for us. Let's pray as we look at this wonderful passage together. Our Father God, we pray that you would give us concentration to understand unfamiliar words, difficult words in some ways. But more than that, we ask that you would give us spiritual understanding, that we might see the glory of the Lamb, that we might praise him that we might value what you value, that we might adore what you adore, and that we might love the Lord Jesus more because of what we learn tonight. Amen. So uh, every now and then I like to read a book that makes me feel clever and sound clever from the front. Uh, so I read uh, Tom Holland's Dominion, which is large and well-reviewed. Uh, Tom Holland's classical historian. He's written uh, some very, very good books about the Roman Empire, Rubicon, 
a right riveting read, um, even though it's uh, ancient history, and Persian fire about the Persian invasion of Greece, Battle of Thermopylae, um, all very heroic stuff. And he, for all of his career, he has loved and venerated the classical world. But he wrote a a history uh, of Islam called Under the Shadow of the Sword and had quite a lot of pushback. People said, look, how would you like it if your beliefs were unpicked and people looked into the origin of all that you value and hold dear? And he thought, okay, I'll take the challenge. He's a secular liberal who loves uh, the virtues of tolerance, compassion, kindness. And so he started to do some serious research. And the more research he did, the more unsettled he became because he realized that Actually, the classical world that he loved valued everything that was the opposite of what he now considered worthy and good. I mean, Caesar unapologetically celebrates the slaughter of a million Gauls and the enslavement of however many more. And see, that's absolutely fine. Harvey Weinstein, that's just normal behavior in ancient Rome. As a man, as the head of your family, you're expected to, for your own pleasure, use anybody who's in your household. Young women, young boys, so long as they're below you in status, you use them as much as you like. Nothing wrong with that. If you have a baby and you don't like the way it looks, you just toss them out with the rubbish, quite literally. Hang on a second. How How have we got to being a culture where we have disabled rights, where we care about what happens to migrant children, where we think the welfare state is a good thing. How on earth did we get from the classical world to that? And what he realized as he did his research was that there's only one real explanation that holds up in the face of history. What changed the Western world from a classical civilization that venerated all that's strong and was quite happy to crush the weak. What changed it was that it was taken over by Christianity, and at the heart of Christianity is the God who poured himself out, who became nothing, who became weak, who became lowly and despised, who became the lamb who was slain to save us. That's the message that transformed all of Western civilization. It is the cross that created the kind, compassionate society that we all just take for granted. Now, I guess uh, for most of us here, there's no danger that we'll give up on, uh, on those values of tolerance and kindness uh, and compassion. But it, when you look around in our, in our culture, actually we ignore, despise, mock, scorn the message that gave birth to that, the message of the cross. For us in here, I guess there's a slightly different danger is that we're just so familiar with the message that, yeah, 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 God became Jesus and he died on a cross, that it's lost its shock. It's lost its power, perhaps, amongst us. Or perhaps for others of us, we're so shaped by our culture that actually when we think about it, uh, forget the sort of Christian language, the stuff I really value, the stuff I love, the stuff I long for in my life is the complete opposite of what we see at the cross, one who gives up, one who reaches down, one who becomes lowly and despised. And so what I want us to see tonight as we look at Revelation 5, what I've been praying this week is that we will see afresh the glory of the Lamb and that we will love what God loves and we will want to live the way that God values. 
So if you like, the, the message of Revelation 4, which we looked at last week, was that God rules everything and everyone now and forever. God rules everything and everyone now and forever. The message at the heart of Revelation 5 is that God rules everything and everyone now and forever, and he rules by the lamb who was slain. It is the lamb who was slain who has begun to reign. That's Revelation 5. The lamb who was slain, it is he who has begun to reign. Revelation 5 is going to tell us Jesus doesn't deserve all honor and praise because he's God. He is God. But the reason that he deserves all honor, all praise, is because he gave up everything. Because he became absolutely nothing. The spat on despised, slaughtered one. That's why he is the the subject of heaven's songs. And because he became weak and vulnerable and was slain for us, our response should be to praise him forevermore. Now, there's there's no chapter break in the heavenly action between uh, chapters 4 and chapter 5. It's a continuation, really. In one sense, chapter 4 scene setting as John peels back the curtains and looks behind what can be seen to what's going on in God's heavenly throne room. And in, in, he sort of set the scene in chapter four, and now in chapter five, the hero enters onto the stage for the first time. Uh, you've got the points as we run through the, the chapter. Who's worthy to open the seal? It's the lamb who triumphs as a slaughtered lamb, and his triumphant slaughter means salvation for all nations, and his eternal glory comes from his earthly suffering. So let's dive in. Verse one. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So the focus shifts from those around the throne to the one on the throne. And in his hand, we're told he's holding a scroll. A scroll is really the focus of this chapter. Just like throne is repeated 12 times in in chapter 4, scrolls repeated almost as many times in chapter 5. And a mighty angel uh, steps forward and issues the challenge, who is worthy to open the scroll in God's hand? Deafening, embarrassing silence in heaven. Okay, what is the scroll? Why is it such a big deal for for it to be open? And why is John blubbing away that no one can open this scroll? We're not told, actually, in in chapter 5. But when you get to chapter 6 next week, we'll see that what the scroll does is it reveals and it enacts God's plan for the world. So the scroll reveals God's purposes for human history and its conclusion. It tells us what God is doing. But of course, God's word always does more than just give information. It does stuff. God's word shapes reality. Creation happened because God started speaking. And so uh, as the seals are open, evil is judged and God's people are rescued throughout chapter 6. So basically, until the scroll is opened and the seals are broken... God's great purposes for human history remain locked up. They await their execution. God's rule, if you like, is up there, and God's people are stuck down here, suffering persecution, crying out for rescue, awaiting for God to do something. Uh, The historical context, as John's writing, is probably AD 90 to 95, so Domitian is the Roman emperor. 
And it's a time when persecution is starting to really increase. There's no official law banning Christianity as a blanket ban quite yet. But the rhetoric is getting ugly. And there are lots of local outbreaks of hostility all over the empire. If you like, the furnace isn't yet raging, but the fires have definitely been lit. Now, quite literally, a few years earlier under Nero's reign, as Christians were um, used as human torches for his nighttime parties. And so already at this point, some Christians have been thrown to the lions by the Romans. Already at this point, some Christians have been stoned to death by the Jewish leaders. Already at this point, some Christians have had their homes looted, their possessions taken, and have been thrown into prison for nothing other than they serve Jesus Christ. And so John weeps, longing that someone would be found who is worthy to enact God's rule on earth and rescue his people. But no one seems worthy to approach God. However, verse 5, his weeping is interrupted. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. There is finally one who's, who's worthy, we're told. The lion of Judah and the root of David. Okay, what's that all about? So the Lion of Judah, he appears in Genesis 49.9. As Jacob dies, he blesses his 12 sons. You've seen the musical. Um, He blesses his 12 sons. And as he blesses Judah, he describes him as a lion and promises that the scepter of rule will never depart from Judah until the one comes who will rule the nations and their obedience will be his. Centuries later, the prophet Isaiah has another prophecy in Isaiah 11 uh, about God's Messiah, his promised king. And he describes him as, in chapter 11 in the Christmas reading that many of us will, will have heard as the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the shoot from Jesse's root, Jesse, David's father. In other words, one born in the line of David, and he describes him as one who will be filled with the Holy Spirit, so he will rule in righteousness and power, one who will bring peace and justice to the world restoring all that was lost when sin came. The line of Judah, the root of David, both fulfilled in Jesus Christ, born in the tribe of Judah, born a descendant of David. And so having ascended back into heaven after his death and resurrection, Jesus is the one who's now approaching the throne of God. And what's happening here, um, we'll put the text up on the screen. This is, this is really the fulfillment of something that was a, a prophecy given to Daniel. So Daniel 7, he looked forward and saw what's going to happen here. So Daniel 7, 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting lasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Here finally the true king with God's divine authority has arrived to take control of human history. It's a stunning moment. In one sense the whole universe is awaited for this moment to arrive. But nothing quite prepares you for what happens next. Now Jesus is described if you've read through Revelation in a number of ways. In chapter one, do you remember he had eyes of blazing fire, feet like bronze burning in a furnace, a voice like a great waterfall. His face shone like the sun in all its brilliance. Go forward to chapter 19. 
And he is the leader of heaven's armies, riding on a great white war horse, crowned with many crowns, eyes of blazing fire, bearing a, a scepter of rule and a sword to defeat his enemies. But here, as he approaches to receive all power and all authority, as he arrives as the triumphant victor of heaven, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He looks to see the mighty lamb, the mighty lion, and instead there's a slaughtered lamb. It just makes no sense. The lion of Judah. And there is a bleeding, mangled corpse ready to be eaten. I mean, this is God the Son. The, the, the seven eyes and the seven horns, seven horns for universal rule, seven eyes uh, for his omniscient knowledge of all things. Now, how can he be a lion and a lamb? I mean, you can't look like a lion and a lamb. Well, you're not meant to put the images in Revelation together. You, you'll really do your head in if you try. But we, they just tell you different things. You know, we describe a heavyweight boxer as having feet like a ballerina, but a sledgehammer of a right hand and a glass jaw. And you're not, they're just telling you different things about the heavyweight, not about me, obviously. They're telling you different things about the boxer. Each image stands alone. What we learn is that Jesus is the messianic king, the lion. But he rules. He rules as a slaughtered lamb. And I wonder, I wonder if it's just so familiar to many of us that it's lost its shock value. But just imagine, picture in your mind's eye the scene in heaven as God announces his plan. He says, look, I know I ought to wipe out humans. They are utterly perverse and wicked. I mean, look at the way they treat each other. Look at the things they value and love, and look at how they treat me. But actually, instead of destroying them, I'm going to save them. But the only way to save them is for somebody to come down from heaven, become a human being like them, and then to be rejected and scorned, despised, and killed in a degrading way to suffer the punishment that they deserve, to die for them. Imagine one of the elders saying, look, not our place to question you, sovereign Lord, obvs, but um, you don't surely expect one of the blazing angels to be utterly humiliated by becoming a lowly human being and then have to submit to death. Not one of your blazing angels, Lord. They're far too holy. They're far too pure. They're far too valuable, too precious. You can't do that to one of the angels. Surely not. God says, no, not one of them. I'm going myself. And it beggars belief. The great, majestic, glorious God the Son, worthy of praise forevermore. He, not some second tier, lower heavenly being, but God the Son, fully equal with the Father in every way. He came down. He submitted himself to becoming a human. He submitted himself to rejection and death 
That's the startling message at the heart of Christianity, the message that has the power to transform humans, individuals, and cultures. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the seal, to rule humanity, to to bring about history? It's the lion who triumphs as a slaughtered lamb. And as the lamb takes the scroll, heaven explodes in praise with two songs. And secondly, we we see his triumphant slaughter means salvation for all nations. Verse 8. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. The heavenly beings, uh, they fall down in worship. And having fallen down in worship, they rise in praise. And as they do so, they explain why it is that Jesus' suffering and death make him so worthy to open the scroll. Verse 9. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. They sing a new song. A new song in the Bible is always a song of redemption, of salvation, a fresh experience of God's saving. So you see that in uh, Psalm 40, verse 3, Psalm 96, verse 1, Isaiah 42, 10. Throughout the Bible, a new song is an experience of God's fresh salvation. And at the heart of the song is that line, with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe. His death means salvation for all kinds of people. That's what he's saying. Now, to understand how that's possible, you have to dig back into the Old Testament. This is full of Old Testament. I told you 404 verses in Revelation, probably 500 allusions uh, to the Old Testament, and there's loads in chapter 4. In particular, the slaughtered lamb is not a random image to choose. We need some sort of image of weakness. Lambs are pretty pathetic. Let's go for a slaughtered lamb. No, there's much more going on. Exodus 12, the Israelites are saved from God's righteous, wrathful judgment by killing a lamb in the place of each family and daubing its blood on the house so the angel of death passes over. Isaiah 53, the servant of God who takes away the sins, who bears the sins of God's people, is described as being led like a lamb to the slaughter as he suffers the punishment for our sins. That's what John the Baptist has in mind when the first thing he says when he sees Jesus at the start of Jesus' ministry is, look, The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it's the death of the true Lamb that achieves salvation for people all over the world, verse 9. And it's the death of the Lamb that brings about the reign on earth in the new creation, verse 10. Now it's really, really important to, to see what he's saying here. It doesn't say his death was a shocker, but his resurrection means he's glorious. It's his death that's triumph here. His death itself is triumphant victory. And that's exactly what happens when you think about it. When Jesus came to the earth, the devil pursued him with a blind fury. And you read through the Gospels and there's masses of demonic activity. The devil is seriously opposing Jesus. No great surprise. He stirs up rejection and hatred everywhere until Jesus is... Pursued to the cross, 
and killed by the very people that he's come to save. And as Jesus is breathing his last on the cross, you can imagine the devil turning away from the darkness and the horror with just gloating delight in his dark heart, drunk on his victory, approaching God, surrounded by mocking demons, and saying to God, well, you can add this to the list of sins. The great charge sheet against your people, they killed your son, their supposed savior. There's no way you can save them now. Look at all the sins stacked up against them. Look at all the charges against them. You have to condemn them now. But as he looks, the charge sheet is not there anymore. Against every single sin committed by every one of God's people, It's now been written over in blood, paid by the Lamb of God, paid by the Lamb of God, paid by the Lamb of God. Jesus' death, his utter victory over Satan and his power to condemn you. His resurrection is victory over death, but his death is victory. His death means your salvation. His death means sin has been conquered. That's why the humiliating shame of Jesus' death on the cross is celebrated in heaven. It destroyed the devil's power to accuse and the law's power to condemn. And it is one salvation. And that's why at the moment when Jesus approaches the throne of God, this is a seriously key moment in human history. At the moment when Jesus approaches the throne of God as the victorious one, who is to reign the nations, of all the things he could appear as, he appears as the lamb who has been slain. His triumphant slaughter means salvation for all nations. Thirdly, uh, the second song tells us his eternal glory comes from his earthly sufferings. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. The camera basically pans back and suddenly millions of angels come swooping down, swirling around the throne room. And there's just this deafening crescendo of praise. Verse 12, in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then the vision stretches forward into the future. And every living thing, including all humans, find themselves singing praise to the one who has died. Verse 13, then I heard every creature in heaven And on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Every single living creature. That's all of us here tonight. That's everybody in London That's everybody in Britain. That's everybody on this planet right now. That's everybody who's drawn breath in all of history. One day, Muhammad and Richard Dawkins and Kim Jong-un will have to say what we say. Jesus Christ is Lord. No one will be able to deny the truth on that day. 
worthy is the Lamb. Now, these songs make clear that Jesus' humiliating death doesn't make him any less God than God the Father who sits on the throne. I mean, the start of church history, there were the, the first 400 years were basically big debates about Jesus and is he really God and how do you relate to God? And when people saw clearly that Jesus was really human, they just couldn't get their heads around the fact well, he can't really be full God. He must be some kind of a, a lower grade God. And when they grasped clearly from the Bible that he's fully God, they, they thought, oh, well, he can't really become a human. Uh, and that was the, the, the great debates and, until people reconciled with what the Bible says, which is fully God, equal with the Father, fully human, suffering sin for us. But you see here, he is fully God. Um, you start to see that in verse 8, as the living creatures and elders fall before the Lamb on the throne, just as they did before the the Lord on the throne in chapter 4, verse 10. And when they sing to the Lamb, they sing with words that are strikingly similar. Uh, so 4.11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. 5.12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And in the final song, the Lamb and the one on the throne to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and glory and power forever and ever. The slaughtered Lamb is also God Almighty. So his, his suffering and his death don't detract from his glory and authority. In fact, they make him worthy to receive the praise of heaven and earth. Look, what we have in Revelation 5 is basically a radically different vision of power and authority. You know, the statues of Caesars, here's, here's a picture of a statue of, uh, of Julius Caesar. They're all sort of jutting jaws and chiseled biceps and heroic poses in military garb. That is power in Rome. The vision at the heart of Christianity could not be more different. That is power in Christianity. It is utterly subversive of all human rule. The irony is the most shameful death in all the Roman Empire, so shameful that Roman citizens were told you should not even look at a crucifixion. It is too degrading to you to even look at it. And yet forevermore, all people will see at the heart of the universe the lamb who was slain and will glory in his crucifixion scars. It is this Jesus, this Lamb, who will receive all our praise forevermore. Just as we close, a couple of implications for us. Uh, firstly, given that the Lamb who is slain is the one who reigns, beware Christian leaders who appear more Caesar than cross. Don't be wowed by Christian speakers and writers who are known for their success, their impressive speaking, their strong leadership, but who aren't known for humility and suffering. Humility and suffering need to be the mark of Christian leaders if those leaders are genuine followers of Christ. The crucifixion of the Lamb of God is the triumphant heart of Christianity. And that must be the pattern for all Christian leadership at every level, from Sunday school leaders to bishops. Everybody, everybody. True, genuine spiritual victory comes through weakness and suffering, not comfort and strength. 
It's why it's so awful. The, I'm not sure if you've seen the, some of the recent controversies in rocking the Christian world about uh, spiritually abusive leadership, bullying. And the reason that's so utterly awful is not just bullying damages the victims, which it does. It's the way it degrades the truth of the cross. That at the heart of Christianity is not mighty Caesar ruling it over, lording it over, but the lamb who was slain. True leadership is servant leadership and sacrificial leadership. Secondly, what's true for leaders is true for us. The crucified lamb is the pattern for all who follow him. Scars and medals in the kingdom of God. Scars and medals. You know, the greatest heroes in heaven, in all likelihood, no one will have heard of their name down here. They're unlikely to have had biographies written of them. They will limp to the gates of heaven, unnoticed by most, their faces unrecognized by the crowds. They will be people who suffered much and poured themselves out sacrificially down here and who look like failures in the eyes of the world, just like Jesus did when he died on the cross. And they are the ones who will share in the glory of the Lamb. Earthly humiliation is the only path to heavenly glory. Victory, victory in God's kingdom is to endure suffering while remaining faithful to the Father. That's the pattern of Jesus. And we'll see throughout Revelation, that's the pattern for God's people. Victory is to endure suffering while remaining faithful to the Father. Physically defeated, but spiritually faithful and eternally, eternally glorious. It should also be the case that those who follow the Lamb who was slain should love the vulnerable, the lowly, and the despised. That's what happened when Christianity took over the Western world. And it should also be true today. We should love the lowly, the vulnerable, the despised, those who our culture doesn't value, because that is exactly what our God became. He became one who was despised, lowly, and not valued by his culture. And so we must love them too. But the ultimate message of Revelation 5 is not about the pattern of human leaders we should follow. It's not about how we should live or treat the vulnerable. It's simply this, worship the lamb. Look at what he was willing to give up to save you. No one has ever given up more for you, whoever you are. And no one has ever sunk lower for you. And so no one is more worthy of our praise, our worship, and our service. The lamb who was slain has begun to reign, so worship him forevermore. That is the message of Revelation 5. And that will be our praise for endless days in the new creation. Let me read to you words from Philippians 2 as Paul reflects on this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Father God, we thank you and praise you for the lamb who was slain. Forgive us when our idea of what is great and glorious is so worldly. Help us to love the lamb for his humility, his sacrifice. Help us to love what you love and to live the way that you lived. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with worship and praise forevermore for the lamb who was slain has begun to reign. Amen.